You are entering the Freedom Hut. The lockdown rebellion grows. California has a stay-at-home order for possibly three more months, bailing out the bailouts. A judge who doesn't seem to want to let Flynn go and was intel suppressed that Russia really wanted Hillary to win. Coming up. This This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America, great here, great America again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. All right, everybody. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Thank you so much for joining today. My, oh, my, we have much to get to. The the big shift that we're seeing right now is away from the data, the data, the data, testing, 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 although they still talk about that. Um, but they're now increasingly just pushing for what are obviously political goals in this whole process. And you can tell because they're going on offense against people who want the country to reopen. Doesn't everybody want the country to reopen? The only reason that you'd be rooting against reopen is political. There's, there's no honest person out there who thinks that this is a good situation for the American people, that this is a sustainable situation, and yet they keep wanting to drag it out. They keep wanting to drag it out. Dr. Fauci, in the testimony yesterday, I read through the transcripts of it. I didn't have time to sit there and watch Senator's grandstand, but the, the transcript of it was, was worthwhile. Dr. Fauci admits that the second that you start to reopen, there will be more infections that occur and there will be more deaths that happen. This is what we are facing. Now, it's not going to be overwhelming. I don't think it's going to be this massive second wave that people have been talking about. But we got to be able to have a conversation as adults in this country about what the future looks like. Instead, what you get from places like CNN which I I really have been thinking about this. I believe the country would be better off, happier and better informed if CNN just became a DIY network. Oh, that actually requires some skill. Um, I was going to say cooking network that also a network that also requires skill. You know, if CNN, I don't know, like ran music videos from the 90s or something, you know, there's just there's nothing that you get that's a benefit from this channel even existing. And the DNC has plenty of other propaganda networks. Nobody would miss it except for the people drawing a paycheck from CNN. Uh, But they have lots of other options. Unlike conservatives, there are plenty of media outlets for them. But here's what you get. Here's what you get from, for example, Bro Cuomo, who is like, hey, I'm, I'm in quarantine for a while, but I was still lifting, bro. Still working up a sweat. Wait, but didn't you break quarantine? Oh, that's right, you did. And got into a fight with a stranger. This guy likes to get into fights with strangers. What a buffoon. Him and his brother. Both. The, the buffoon brothers, really. Or, or the bros Cuomo, as we call them. He, but here's what passes for discourse now. You got a national you know, cable news show, and you can expect people to say really horrible stuff about anybody who wants to reopen. If you are sick of being locked in your home, if you're tired of this, of dubious constitutionality lockdown order, of, of dubious scientific basis as well, Oh, it's because you don't care about old people and you're racist. That's the new that's the new addition to this play clip four. It's an interesting juxtaposition, Sanjay, that the president's thing is about being anti-elitist. His buddies over on Fox State TV, anti-elitist. Ten thousand deaths are the price tag that their model puts on this. 
talk about being elitist. If that's okay, who do you think those 10,000 people are going to be? Who's getting affected the most? The working class, the brown working class. Who's most afraid of reopening too soon? The brown working class. Who's getting sick the most? The brown working class. Who's dying the most? They are. There's nothing elitist about that. It's everything that's elitist. Do any of you believe for one second that Bro Cuomo, who because of his last name got into certain you know, academic institutions that he never would have otherwise, uh, and because of his last name, has a job at CNN as a news anchor where he's entirely replaceable and deeply unimpressive. Do any of you think that he really cares about, as he calls it, the, quote, brown working class? This is a guy who shuttles between a multimillion dollar apartment in New York City and a house in the Hamptons, which for those who don't know, is the fancy vacation destination within a couple of hours of New York City out on Long Island. I, I mean, I really ask this question in, in earnest. Are, are we supposed to believe that all of a sudden that Chris Cuomo cares so much more than everybody else about the minority working class. And that's why he doesn't like the administration's plan for reopen, which the administration's plan for reopen has been approved by and signed off on by the public health experts that are, I think, having far too much influence in this whole process. But this is where it all goes. You're going to see a series of emotional and moral blackmails occur in the weeks ahead, in the, in the days ahead. It's already happening. But this is what the argument's going to turn into. It was you want old people to die, and now it's you want old people and minorities to die if you believe that a disease that has a 99.9% survivability rate for everybody under the age of 70, if you believe that that is uh, the case, that, that we shouldn't shut down the whole country. You don't care about old people. And, and now they're saying you don't care about minorities. As we know, the disease does not discriminate between uh, minorities and anybody else. It's a virus. It infects human beings. But because of demographic distribution, in play, particularly in New York City, uh, and the density and the, the public transportation system and a few other factors added in here, Yes, it has had a disproportionate impact on people who live in some parts of the city that are uh, largely minority. But it's also infecting people all across the country and people of all backgrounds and ethnicities are getting this and dying from it. it interestingly enough, I, I was surprised to see the numbers um, because I think that there was an anticipation that we, we had been thinking that, well, one, there were going to be it was going to be a lot higher overall, um, but smokers don't seem to be at as high of a risk for this. And in the, in the early days, smokers were, I know some, I talked to a few about it, and they were terrified. It turns out that smokers aren't really at as high risk for this. But, but regardless, um, the, moral, the moral blackmail uh, attempt here should be met with, first of all, the disdain that it deserves. I mean, Chris Cuomo is, is being, this whole thing is disingenuous. What does he want us to do? We're just going to stay locked down forever. We're going to allow the economy. It, it's... The damage that is happening now economically, you won't really even be able to understand it for months to come. And it might even be years before we're able to, to see the full and long term impact of it, as well as the immediate damage of 30 million people unemployed, of businesses that we keep thinking we're going to come back. We're going to we're going to hit our stride will be something close to previous capacity. That's not true. That's not true for the two reasons of the regulations and the restrictions that are being put on these businesses. It's also not true uh, because there will be there'll be much less demand 
And then there are whole industries that I think are, are at risk. I mean, there's an expectation right now that the airline industry might, ha- might end up having to lay off 100,000 people this fall. What do we do? I mean, how, how do we get our airline industry back before there's a vaccine? You know, you're going to start to see entire business sectors that are effectively collapsing. This is why we have bailouts of bailouts already and bailouts of state governments and bailout of local governments. And, and you're going to have bailouts of, of more companies and, and individuals. Now, the individuals aren't really getting a bailout. It's a rescue and it's a rescue in response to a government policy. Uh, But that all said, we don't have the money for this. So we can be honest about this and understand that this is not a solution. And no public health expert will go on TV and say it is to just keep our heads down, stay at home. You know, I think it's so fascinating, too, for all of Chris uh, Chris Cuomo's bluster here about the uh, about, as he calls it, the brown working class. Who does he think a lot of the frontline workers are? Who does he think a lot of the people who are still delivering food who are still you know working for ups and for the postal service and working in grocery stores and working in pharmacies Uh, there's a considerable contingent i mean i don't know what the percentages are but plenty of them are minorities and they're still risking their lives every day if you believe that being outside and conducting any kind of business is risking your life which is what we're all being told you know it's always risking your life right you leave your house and I've said this to you before. I'm always reminded of the line from the movie Heat with Al Pacino where he says, you get killed walking your doggy," which is true. You can. And I walk the dog several times a day, despite the fact that it is possible to get killed walking your doggy. All right. We didn't know. And, and for anyone who's wondering, well, Buck, why were you OK with the two week shutdown? And why were you? Because we were being told that this had a three or four percent mortality rate, that it could kill anybody at any age with with equal, uh, you know, at, at equal risk effectively or, or close to it. You know, we thought this was going to be a much more lethal, which is I know right now with 80,000 dead. How could you be talking about it being much more lethal? But that's what we were led to believe by all the scientists. I mean, I, I don't I wasn't conducting field trials and data and looking at what was going on in the hospitals in Lombardy or in Wuhan. We were told that this was going to be, you know, orders of magnitude worse than it was in terms of death. So, yeah, in that scenario, we're going to have to take a pause here and see what's going on. But now we have the numbers. Now we have the data and we can live through this. But you're seeing the the game the left is going to play now. And this is for political purposes because they're not so stupid. Well, at least most of them. Some of them are so stupid, but they're not so stupid in general that they really think that uh, we can just stay in lockdown indefinitely. They're, they're, I don't think they're, they're that dumb. Some of them may be, but most of them aren't. What you're seeing is using this as a, a moment to pretend that they care so much more about life, and therefore they're the good people, the better people, when also at the end of this, they view an enormous benefit to a continued... Now, when I say continued shutdown, maybe it's a series of shutdowns. Maybe it's keeping us all in phase one or phase two of the reopen. They want this to go as slowly as possible before the election because they want Donald Trump to lose re-election. That is a major motivation for them at this point. The left, the Democrats, that is at the top of the list. It's top of the list. Uh, They also never even grapple with what the projections are for global fatalities uh, because the the truly poor around the world are going to be horrifically, uh, horrifically damaged. Many will lose their lives as a result of this decision of the economic shutdown. I'm also going to need people to explain who do we blame 
as I told you yesterday, and we were talking to Dr. Scott Atlas here about it, who do we blame when we start seeing uh, in three, four, five months just how many people have uh, terminal cancer that was allowed to grow and continue uncaught for months because of the shutdown? How many, who do we turn to and, and yell at when we find out that people who stopped chemo for a while now are in a much worse position and may lose their lives to the disease because the chemo was stopped so that we could fight all hands on deck against COVID, including in places that barely had any cases across the country. Who do we blame for that? Do we get to call up the, the, the bros Cuomo? If you listen to the media, you're not allowed to blame Governor Cuomo for decisions that seem horrifically bad now in retrospect across the board and a record that is appalling. Appalling as I mean, if he's in charge of the health of New York state and has all these agencies and has all these people that are experts advising him, uh, he did a, He did a, a a god awful job. He really did. But you won't hear that from the media. That's where we're heading, my friends. It's just going to turn into political trench warfare for the next few months. They're going to try to make this as slow as possible. And they, they will justify all the economic pain and destruction to themselves with two things. Oh, we care so much about them. We care so much more than Republicans about the minority working class. That's what they'll say. And they'll also say anything to defeat Trump is worth this price, right? I mean, anything to defeat Trump is, is acceptable over the long run because he's an existential threat to our democracy, as they've been telling us for years. So this is going to be tough. The rebellion is going to have to grow against the lockdown state by state and across the country. And we all have to be a part of rebelling against it in our own ways. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. When you wear a mask, you say, I respect you. That's what the mask says to everyone you walk past. I respect you. I respect you. I respect your health. I respect your privacy. I respect your space. I respect you. I can do anything I want with myself. This is America. But I respect you. And out of respect for you, I wear this mask. And I respect the nurses and the doctors. So I'm not going to infect anyone or allow anyone else to be infected unnecessarily so I don't cause more stress on the nurses and the doctors. This mask says, I respect the essential workers. Notice how, how insidious this construction, this construct of, of the mask wearing becomes. It's no longer about an individual choice. It's not about your risk. It's about all the people around you. Uh, this, is all, all, this is really just becoming a stand-in for you no longer have any rights. You no longer have any say in anything because it's about saving the people around you. Remember, saving the people around you from a disease that over 99% of people will be fine from. But, but with, because of that less than 1% risk, and they're, by the way, they're, they're treating this now, if you, if you have a serology test where you have antibodies, are you still supposed to wear a mask? That's anti-scientific. If you're still supposed to wear a mask out in the open air where there's effectively zero risk of transmission to somebody, that's anti-scientific. We have the data, we have the studies on this. The evidence does not, does not support at least some of what the implications are here of what starts to sound like mask fascism. You know, you better do this or else because everybody else, because the collective needs it. They demand it. Oh, don't even get me started on the, the peer-reviewed CDC published study 
that said that masks in influenza season don't really do all that much. I know. I know people, you know, we I did a little bit of research this week back into the uh, Spanish flu of 1918. And it is kind of wrongly named in a sense, but they don't know where it came from. There are a couple of different theories. We know that the Spanish uh, press wrote about it during the First World War because Spain was a neutral country. So they didn't have true propaganda restrictions on what their journalists were able to say there. uh, There were a lot of infections. In fact, there were battles that were determined in part because there were so many people on the front lines in World War One at different periods who did have influenza and so were completely combat ineffective. Uh, and it's not helpful to go back really and read about because that disease, there was a whole lot of stuff that happened with that one that we're not seeing here. The One of the more notable ones is that it went after people, particularly 20 to 40. So people who were, um, a, a lot of them who were parents of young children, and uh, you would think at a, at a healthier stage to fight off a disease. But no, that didn't end up that didn't end up being the case at all. Uh, but the government, th- this is why it's so notable. The government failed at, at effectively every level in this. And you just had a rolling series of collapses of different, uh, you know, healthcare initiatives. You had politicians who made the wrong call. You had, you know, ultimately what you take from the Spanish flu of 1918, the history of it, you look at it and you say, uh, our public health experts and our government were, were effectively um, worthless. I mean, the disease just ripped through all over the place. They weren't able to really, there was like one exam, there are a couple of islands, you know, in the South Pacific where, the, okay, we don't all live on a tiny desert island in the South Pacific or a tropical island in the South Pacific. So the, the, the real lesson you take from it is that the government was coming up with all these different things and, you know, they were setting up these... They were setting up uh, uh, different medical facilities and putting out treatments. First of all, they didn't have a real treatment for it. So I don't even know what you know, they were just giving people stuff to give them stuff. You know, at some level, the government's uh, panic turns into just more and more regulations. The same impulse to always write more laws to deal with every problem the government has, just laws upon laws. Uh, we're also being given all of this advice from the government about what to do here. And they've really shown us already a, a legacy of failure in preventing and then combating this virus. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Has anybody in this administration ever asked you or any member to take the foot off the gas and try and find a, a cure or, or any type of countermeasure? No, Senator, not, not at all. As a matter of fact, uh, we at MIH, as you know, have been right from the very beginning. Uh, put our foot right on that accelerator in every aspect, including the development of vaccines and therapeutics. And as I described in my opening statement, we actually started that in January, literally days after the virus was known and its sequence was published. So, no, I have never been told by anyone to pull back on the uh, development of any countermeasure or any basic research project that we've been involved in. You won't hear much coverage of the more uh, praise, uh, you know, of the parts of the testimony yesterday that were uh, praiseworthy for the administration or where they were saying, you know, the Trump administration hasn't stood in the way of anything we've tried to do. We've been hearing this mantra of they don't listen to the experts. They listen to the experts all the time. Unfortunately, experts have been wrong on a whole bunch of stuff. And this then uh, makes me think of where we are in in uh, with California. Uh, yesterday, 
it, it broke in the afternoon that California, according to its public health director, I'm sorry, Los Angeles, according to its public health director, uh, was saying that they were, were expecting to probably be on lockdown for three more months. In, in Los Angeles County, they've had 1,500 deaths from this. You're, you're going to lock everybody down, you know, no more, uh, no going out to shop and, and live life. You can't go to restaurants. You can't go to bars. You can't buy things in most stores for three more months. I mean, are these people insane? This is what the, 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 the experts, the public health, because look, there's no, there's no down. First of all, they're getting a paycheck. There's no downside for them to say, yeah, I mean, let's keep, keep locking down. They don't want to deal with the heat of people like Cuomo. Oh, you don't care about the, the working class and minorities. Um, no, it's, that's not it at all, actually. You know who's going to get hurt the worst by the destruction of the U.S. economy? Poor people and disproportionately uh, poor minorities. That also will really affect them. The health implications of the long term for preventing people from doing any uh, preventative medicine, uh, from being able to treat chronic conditions, and then also on top of it, all, all of the, the health effects of just being effectively forced to be largely sedentary. I mean, I know people say, oh, you can get out. And, but yeah, it's different, you know, and you can't see people. You can't meet up. You can't go to classes where you would, you know, you work out. You can't go to the gym. Uh, you drink more than you've been drinking before. A lot of people are going to develop alcoholism. A lot of people are abusing drugs. Huge consequences, huge cost to all of this. Los Angeles is like, yeah, let's do this for 90 more days. I mean, I hope there is mass noncompliance. But the problem is now, the closer we get to November, and now you have to start seeing it this way, the closer they can push it to November, the better off they know Joe Biden's chances will be. And I, I know I, we shouldn't be thinking about it or we shouldn't have to think about it in those terms. I think uh, Matthew McConaughey released some let's not make this political ad. Nice idea, but a little too late, buddy. Uh, it's very political. They view this as just how much uh, runway can they take away from the Trump administration to get things back on track and to improve the economy. So the, the more they extend, see, they are incentivized now to extend the lockdown to get that as close to November as possible. I mean, really, all you have to do, I mean, if they can keep us in a state of even semi-lockdown until August, they think they, they must know that the economy won't. First of all, the damage will be enormous. The damage gets greater in time, but also the pull out of the ditch, so to speak, right? The uh, removing ourselves from these these difficult circumstances that will not be able to occur quickly enough for people to give the administration any credit or any any faith um, and that's how you get a Joe Biden presidency. You know, they're, they're just going to you know, take the little blankie off his shoulders and take the little thermos of warm milk out of his hands and trot him on up to the, the victory stage. I'm yelling because I don't know what's going on. And we're all supposed to say, yeah, this guy, he's really got it. He's really going to run the country great. But it's just a figurehead. It just it's, it's not about you have to remember this. Because I know I like to point out what a, what a horrible candidate he is, but it's all about the mythology they've created around him, the continuation of the Obama legacy. And it's not really about Joe Biden for the left. It's about all the people that then are in positions of authority. It's about who Joe Biden appoints to be head of HHS, 
who Joe Biden would put on the Supreme Court, who Joe Biden has running the White House, who Joe, that's what really matters to them. And we all, those people will just be the Democrat, uh, the Democrat power and control echelon. You know, they're all, already waiting in the wings. This is also why the Bernie Sanders thing, they're like, eh, eh. the people that really call the shots, they're saying, OK, well, Biden, we know, will do what we want him to do. I mean, he's effectively a puppet of the left wing political apparatus in this country now, you know, of the, of the Democrat establishment, which is the same thing. The left and the Democrats are obviously synonymous now. So that's that's something to, to remember as we go through this. But also, you know, with California thinking they might extend their lockdown 90 days, I think it is is worth noting uh, that we're talking or we're starting to see schools claim uh, already that they're not going to be reopened for the fall. Universities are some universities have said they're going to be uh, taking teleclass only. So, you know, virtual classes or teleclass or whatever you however you call it. People are really going to be paying $60,000 a year to watch classes on a computer and sit at home. I I don't know how, you know, universities got so fat and happy in the the last 30 or 40 years. It's just been an it's just been outrageous. This arms race of the, you know, the fake credentialing system that they all have set up. There are too many schools for it to even really matter anymore. All the schools are great. And the elite schools bring in bozos by the truckload, too, for all kinds of reasons, whether it's rich mommy and daddy or social justice or athletics or whatever. The the whole university system as the preparatory ground for the leadership of the future. It's all it's all garbage now. If you want to learn, I mean, you really need a you need a baseline level of educational tools and skills which you can get and people are finding out you can actually get it at home. But you can also uh, get this by the time you're, you know, if you're in a pretty rigorous program midway through high school, probably. And then after that, just self-directed study, apprenticeship, uh, hands on learning, working at different things and jobs. That's going to become much that's going to become much more important. Sitting in a lecture hall and writing two completely monotonous uh, you know, research papers a semester and doing this over and over again for a whole bunch of different classes. This is not n- no one is impressed by, you know, someone's psych degree from Oberlin. It don't, no one no one cares anymore uh, if they ever did. So that's going to be a, a change that comes out of all of this. I think I know I always pick on Oberlin. Uh, there are some schools that get picked on a lot. Oberlin's definitely one of them. Brown University, too. You know, yeah. An Ivy without grades. That sounds really rigorous. Sounds like people are really working hard there and getting a, getting a great education. Sure. Ah, I digress. So here's the other part of the opening schools, though. Uh, this is where we get into the, you know, I'm, I'm focused in on this with testing because I can only make so much noise. I can only tell so many people, um, you know, I mean, here, here's a perfect example. I mean, this morning I, I woke up and I just thought, OK, just so we're all clear here. We should be out of lockdown. This is nuts. Just a reminder. That's what I tweeted out. I'm just going to keep telling everybody this. This is crazy now. New York should, in two days, New York should allow a phase one reopening. The metrics were pretty close to it, but they're going to delay it another two weeks. And then if we're a little bit behind the metrics they have, they might delay it another two weeks. Well, we shouldn't burn a month because of arbitrary metrics about leaving 30% of hospital beds open for COVID patients when there's no way we're going to have that kind of a surge going into the summer right now. It's not going to happen. You know, we, we've haven't we learned our lesson from the, the terrible models that they used and how far off they were. They were so wrong on ventilators. They were so wrong on ICU beds, wrong on all this stuff. 
But now we're supposed to, you know, they, they, they keep getting the numbers wrong. The projections about the numbers are wrong. And we say, well, hold on a second. They say, oh, don't worry about that. That's water under the bridge. We say, yeah, but now today you're saying, based on this new set of projections, this is what we need to do right now. And we look at this and go, well, hold on. Don't, don't we get to, you know, aren't we in the trust tree in the nest? Can we? Nope. Nope. Not allowed. Not allowed. Uh, you're supposed to listen or else. Listen or else. They, they don't want to hear it. So you got the CDC director, uh, Robert, Dr. Robert Redfield, who was talking about testing. As you know, I'm very focused in on this testing part of it because there's a, there, it, it's really easy to say. And remember, government never will tell you we don't have we we can't fix this for you. That's the government won't really accept that. That's just not in their mindset. They think if they just have more control, they can fix anything. If you give the government more power, it is a belief of government that it will be able to handle whatever the problem is. And this is this is an enormous uh, miscalculation and misconception. And really, our, our entire uh, system of government is, is premised to prevent that creep. Right. But we've been losing that battle really for the last hundred years or so now where the federal government is getting larger and more powerful all the time. But the federal government believes that it can fix the problem. Well, well, hold on. Let, let me come back and we'll talk about testing. And yes, there's all these numbers, but there are some things that they're not telling you as they're telling you the numbers. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. All right. So what's the truth of testing? Mitt Romney was there during the briefing yesterday to clarify that when they said we've done more per capita testing, the president said it. And it was also brought up by uh, by Admiral Girouard, uh during his testimony that we're doing more per capita testing. But Romney's like, well, we weren't doing more per capita testing at the beginning of this. OK, that's true. But that's not what they said. Thanks, though, Mitt. Oh, always good to have Mitt Romney weigh in and tell us that, you know, he's on he's on no one's team. He's on team Mitt. And so that that's the the kind of loyalty you want in a public servant, a guy who only cares about himself. Uh, oh, I know there are others. There are lots of others. We could name them, but we don't have time for that right now. So here's the here's what they're saying about testing and how essential it is. Play clip six. Rapid, extensive and widely available, timely testing is essential for reopening America. CDC's role in testing continues to support diagnosis and contact tracing, surveillance and outbreak. OK, testing's really important, right? Here's what they're not telling you. We're already we're already at a point we have excess capacity for the testing that we have in most states, meaning that people aren't getting tested all the time. And for what they're envisioning, they're looking at creating a capacity where you have uh, tests that are so ubiquitous uh, that they're they're all across the country and people will constantly be getting them. You know what's going to have to happen. And they're not talking about this yet, but I'm telling you, this is the next phase. Mandatory tests for all kinds of things. People aren't just going to show up and, and, and get tested for coronavirus. And you're going to have to get tested to really know. And they've the, the health experts have said this. You're going to have to get tested every every two weeks. You can get tested and you're negative And the next day you get infected. So. What is the expectation? They're talking about doing 50 million tests a month by the fall. It's one in six Americans uh, getting tested, you know, over the course of the month, getting tested in the fall. Uh, I, how is this going to happen? 
Well, you look at the South Korea model, which I've brought up with you and other places, and there's a lot of you will get, to, you know, you have to get tested. You will be tested. Uh, okay. So we're going to trust the government that didn't see this pandemic coming, that essentially closed the barn door after the horses left with the spread of the virus. Um, now we're going to trust them to determine how often we all get tested and what the ramifications of that will be. Uh, my friends, this is this is a mess. This is a mess. And it doesn't even have the intended. If you test, you know, 50 percent of the U.S. population, you know, in, in one month, there's still 160 million people out there who could get infected and could spread this disease to other people. So what do we think that? Yeah, I'm not saying it's not help. Of course, testing has a role. Of course, it's a, but we have. Let's just look at something that we can. All understand we have testing right now for the flu. And I brought this up, I think, yesterday on the show. And I, I got the flu a few years ago and I took the, the test and they said, oh, yeah, you got full blown influenza, my friend. The whole thing it was very clear. OK, um, I had been kind of sick for about three or four days by the time I went in. And I had been around, I'm sure, plenty of people having no idea that I was sick even before I had any symptoms. So what's the huge? OK, so now I know that I've got the flu, which I pretty much knew anyway. Do you think that all these asymptomatic people are going to be going in to get tested? I mean, the trace part of this, too. This is where, oh, my gosh, there's all this focus on how we're, we're not up to where we need to be on on the trace system. Um, remember yesterday we're talking to Dr. Atlas and what he said about how the, the tracing. Oh, here you go. Here's Senator Doug Jones harping on this one. Seven. Play it. Are you saying that you think that the federal government and or state governments are capable of doing the level of contact tracing that we will need. They are capable. Are they capable at this very moment? Absolutely not. We've got to get more money to them. We've got to figure out this plan. Dr. Redfield testified yesterday that he's working with the states. Uh, I believe that. I think that the state, I know in my state, they're looking at trying to ramp up all this. We are not capable of doing that at this very moment. But I think we've got the time. We've got uh, the opportunities to do that. We've got to get more money. We've got to get a plan. Uh, those plans are being developed, but they need to put that urgency on those plans. I think by this summer, I think we can do that. You know, look, it, 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 we've got the opportunities to learn from these lessons. We've got to seize those opportunities. Or as Dr. Fauci said, there's going to be more needless suffering and more needless deaths. There is absolutely no way that this tracing army of 100,000 people that the lockdown consensus is pushing for is going to be formed in time. And even if it is to think that this is going to be effective. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. More than half the people by a lot of studies that have this are asymptomatic. So you're going to have some government employee that comes and, and visits with you and tells you, you know, and you have to tell them everyone you've been around, everyone you've been near. Then they're going to go talk to all those people. Think about how long, I went through a federal background investigation, which was a, a incredibly slow and grotesquely incompetent process. Uh, that involved countless useless man hours. And that was in the just the, the elite echelon of trying to get a TS clearance to go into the CIA. You really think this army of tracers is going to be efficient? What's their training? What do they, what do they know about anything? 100,000 people? You're going to have TSA agents, so to speak. No offense, TSA. I know some of you love the show, and I appreciate you keep the plane safe. But you're going to have people who are newly minted federal employees who are going to be showing up and saying, guess what? You have to stay home for two weeks, and so does everyone in your family, and so do all your coworkers. Under pain of fine? 
Oh, yeah, that won't be a problem, folks. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. It has become an article of faith that the Russians wanted Donald Trump to win the 2016 election based upon an intelligence community assessment from years ago. What if that wasn't true? What if, in fact, there was contrary intelligence and it was suppressed? That's a bombshell. And it's one that has been raised by a man who knows what the heck he's talking about when it comes to all this. Fred Flights, he is the president for the Center uh, for Security Policy. He's a former National Security Council chief of staff and CIA analyst. Fred, great to have you back. Hey, bud. Good to be here. All right. Start with this. You wrote an article on, I think it was foxnews.com, where you raised the possibility um, or you, you raised that the, your belief that John Brennan, when he was CIA director, may have done what when it comes to the Russian narrative? Well, Buck, there was a very strange intelligence community assessment that came out in early 2017 that said the Russians meddled in the 2017 election and did so to help Trump win. Now, this is a very strange assessment. It didn't follow the rules. Only three agencies were involved. Only half a dozen analysts of those agencies were involved. And, and you and I know that when you do these assessments, you bring in all the experts and you extensively vet it. But this one was rushed through. They didn't follow the rules. There were no dissents. It was just strange. And I've been talking about that for a long time. Well, I learned in the summer of 2018 that there was a House Intelligence Committee report that found that this assessment was rigged in that there was intelligence that the Russians wanted Hillary Clinton to win, that John Brennan suppressed over the objections of CIA analysts, and instead, very weak intelligence that didn't meet CIA standards was included, that the Russians wanted Trump to win. Brennan had that included also over the objections of CIA analysts. I think this goes to the larger narrative that there was really an all-government effort by the Obama administration to destroy Donald Trump during the campaign, during the transition, and to destroy his presidency by weaponizing intelligence. This was just a piece of that. I mean, let's just put on our CIA hats for a second here, Fred, and think about if you're Vladimir Putin, uh, Hillary Clinton, the Democrats traditionally have been very malleable, very willing to play ball, um, did not view, I mean, you look at what Obama said to Mitt Romney about how, you know, 1980 called, they want their foreign policy back. Did not view, Russia only became a problem to Democrats after Hillary lost the election. So if we just were to work backwards here, we'd say, hold on, why would it be so clear that Putin would want Trump to win? You would only believe that if you also believed all of the now entirely discredited nonsense, including, you know, the P tape and the dossier and all this craziness, which we now know was totally fabricated. If you're working backwards and you look at this from a more reasonable perspective on foreign policy, there's at least an argument that you would think that Vladimir Putin would have wanted Hillary to win. So why, why wouldn't anyone come to that conclusion? I think in the intelligence community is, is an interesting question in and of itself. Well, the president's critics have tried to say, well, the Russians didn't like Hillary Clinton. I think that's true. But they walked all over her and they walked all over Barack Obama and the House Intelligence Committee staffers said they wanted her to win because she was a known quantity. And they didn't want Donald Trump to win, according to these same staffers, because he was an unknown quantity. And they were worried he was going to bring anti-Russian hawks 
into his administration. So it's possible for the Russians not to like Hillary, but still they wanted her to win because they knew they could walk all over just like they did when she was secretary of state. Now, Fred, uh, we're speaking to Fred Flights. He's the president for the Center for Security Policy, former NSC, former CIA. Talk to me about the Obama administration. I'm sorry, the Obama himself role in what we've seen here, uh, given given this meeting that happened in January and the request to be kept in the loop about everything going on. And, and then the Susan Rice memo saying written to herself in her last I think her last hours in her role. Sent herself an email saying, oh, we want to make sure everything's by the book. Why should we believe why should we believe that Barack Obama was not personally involved in the targeting of General Flynn, for example, given what we know? Well, Susan Rice wrote an email to herself about a January 5th meeting that she had with the with President Obama and Clapper was in there and Comey and 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 Sally Yates. And during the meeting, Obama said, do we have to turn over everything to the incoming Trump administration on Russia. This, this was really an appalling thing for a president to say, because there's a very princi- very important principle of our country called the peaceful transfer of power. The outgoing administration fully cooperates with the incoming one. They turn over the keys of the offices. They tell them about foreign policy initiatives that are launched in. They tell them about intelligence that's been collected. The idea that the outgoing administration wanted to with not just withhold intelligence that they had collected, but to task career officers like Comey and Sal Yates to continue to investigate Donald Trump and his staff after they left office, it, it, is, it is such an appalling violation of this important principle of our country. That, this is what distinguishes us from tin pot dictatorships. When the election is over, the losing party submits to the will of the American people and cooperates and wishes the next administration well. Instead, Barack Obama, clearly by that question in that January 5th meeting, directed his staff to withhold information and to continue to undermine Trump even after Inauguration Day. Now, there's the unmasking controversy that has gotten a little bit more attention, in part because there there have been these reports that the acting director of uh, national intelligence, uh, Richard Grinnell, has been saying, look, I'm going to release a list of the senior administration officials. Now, and just to review for everybody, I think this audience knows this quite well, but unmasking refers to getting information about what had been covered up U.S. personnel names, essentially, in surveillance intercepts. You unmask them, it means, well, instead of, you know, U.S. person number one, it's Fred Flights, right? Instead of U.S. person number two, it's Buck Sexton. And they can find out who the person is having the conversation. That's a very sensitive tool to use because you're talking now about surveillance on American citizens. Fred, uh, where does this unmasking issue stand? What's Grinnell's position and why does it seem like it's been held up? I'm not sure why it's been held up, but it's an important principle that in foreign intelligence reports, the names of Americans are redacted because we're not supposed to collect against them. I've been involved in unmasking. It's very unusual. There have to be very good reason to do it. Now, Democrats run around saying, oh, it's done all the time. It's not done all the time. I was John Bolton's chief of staff for four years. He made 10 such requests. Deputy Secretary of Armitage in four years made four. But 
Samantha Power, Obama's ambassador to the U.N., made 260 requests, most of them in late 2016. Buck, I don't understand why the ambassador to the U.N. would need so many requests, reportedly, of Trump campaign officials. I also don't understand why the names of these requesters hasn't been made public. It's not sensitive. I want to know specifically who asked for reports mentioned Michael Flynn to be demasked and what was the reason that they did it. I think we need to know that. And it's pretty clear it was an effort to destroy Flynn as part of their effort to destroy Donald Trump. And, and on this, uh, on this, look, it, it, for me, and we're speaking to uh, Fred Flights, the president for the Center for Security Policy, ex-NSC and CIA. Uh, Fred, on this issue of basic transparency, are we going to get this list of the maskers and or the unmaskers rather? And, and what you know, what the number of requests was? It seems to me like this is executive branch information. How can they stop us from knowing if we go through proper procedures? I mean, DNI Grinnell seems to want to get it out there. As of at least yesterday, I saw there's some kind of a holdup. Are you confident we're going to find out? Because, yeah, what you just said, Samantha Power, U.N. ambassador, there's basically zero reason for her to be doing this. I mean, you know, you and I have both seen a lot of classified reports. I remember when we would talk about anything that would touch on U.S. personnel. They're like, if you abuse any of this or we find out you messed around, you're out and you're going to leave in handcuffs. And that was the attitude. But with these Obama administration officials, it's, hey, you know, whatever. It's our power. It's our prerogative. Are we going to find out? Well, I have not discussed this with with Mr. Grinnell. He sent the list of of the requesters of the, of the unmasking to the Justice Department. The Justice Department said it's not in our authority to demask them. Now, my understanding is Grinnell has the highest authority to demask or to declassify information aside from the president that he can release it. I wonder whether maybe Grinnell sent this to to the Justice Department so to make sure that his action would not interfere with John Durham's investigation of misconduct around the election. But the president can demask, I mean, can uh, reveal these names immediately. They're not classified, it's under his purview, or he can direct Grinnell to do it. There's, there's, there's no lawsuit, there's no right of these people to withhold this information. Yes, and they should they should be fine with it. I mean, this is the, you know, the other problem here is there's, there's no reason to believe that uh, the people that were requesting these unmaskings, we're not asking, you know, we're asking how many times and who were the officials who asked for the unmasking. That should be information. I mean, you just said, you know, Bolton asked for it 10 times. That doesn't set up any red flags, right? But if we found out that Bolton, before a Democrat was about to be president, all of a sudden asked for, you know, three or 400 unmaskings in the last weeks that he was in the job, and there was an effort to destroy a Democrat official who, you know, then people would want to know what's going on. So it seems pretty clear here that they're playing games. Are you just before before we let you go, uh, Fred, uh, are you confident in the look? I've been very cynical about on the one hand, I've been I've known how bad a lot of the deep state as, as you have too, how bad a lot of the deep state machinations have been and the lies about the dossier and all this other stuff, which we've now we've been proven right. So high five you and me and along with many others. But we've been proven right. OK, I've also said don't expect any of these people to go to prison or even face criminal charges. So far, I've been right on that, too. I don't feel good saying that, but I've been right. Uh, do you think the Durham probe, if they've got the goods, would actually put the cuffs on somebody like a Clapper, a Brennan, etc. Because I think the answer is no. I, I'm sort of concerned that will never happen, but I'm I'm holding out hope that Michael Flynn will be able to sue for damages for this uh, 
prosecution of him that I think was completely groundless, manufactured by multiple Obama officials. Uh, that, that isn't full justice, but I think we'd all feel pretty good if he got back uh, his legal fees and, and, and some fees for the emotional uh, damage and distress he was put through by this fraudulent investigation. Yeah, he might be able to do a, a Bivens action, I think is what it's called, against uh, for civil rights violations from the federal government. But those are very tough to win, so we'll have to see. Fred Flights, everybody, president of the Center for Security Policy, former NSC and CIA. Fred, always appreciate it, man. Come back soon. Good to be here. Thanks, Buck. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Team, if you recall, last week I said that we had found out finally the truth of the ambush and the effort to destroy General Flynn. Now here we are, and I mentioned to you that we got to see what the judge does because some of my savvier legal eagle friends and, and minds out there had, had brought up to me behind, uh, you know, behind closed doors or on, on various communications that we had. You don't know until this judge actually says, okay, we're done here. You know, the, the case is dismissed. And we got a problem because Judge Sullivan, Judge Emmett Sullivan, has decided this happened yesterday, and people are stunned by this. I was not stunned. As you know, I was saying, okay, we got to wait and see what the judge does. You go back, you check the transcript last week. I was like, we got to see what this judge does. It's going to be a little crazy sometimes. And now he's allowing third parties to submit amicus curiae briefs, friend of the court briefs, um, to allow, effectively to allow all of these left-wing interests and these groups that, that hate Flynn uh, to you know, sound off on how awful he is and how this is the wrong decision. Uh, what what do third parties have? Who the heck, who the blank cares what some other person thinks of the Department of Justice dropping the case against General Flynn? Why is that relevant? I mean, now the judge can do this. Obviously, he is doing it. Uh, but what this shows us and you know, usually this only happens in civil cases and it's to give somebody the opportunity. It's to give outside interest the opportunity to have their voices heard in a, in a trial that maybe touches on, uh, you know, issues that are that are sweeping and that a lot of people have a stake in. Um, this is this is not a good indicator, my friends. This is looking like he's giving a voice to left wing anti Flynn activists so that then he'll have backing for when he says, yeah. I don't care that the deal and he can do this. He can do this. Judge Sullivan, he can say, I don't care that the Department of Justice has said this case never should have been prosecuted and we do not wish to continue its prosecution. Here's the problem. He already uh, Flynn, as we know, already pleaded guilty because they stacked the deck. They essentially falsified evidence against him. They changed the FBI 302. And now the judge could just say, OK, guess what, DOJ? I don't need you to prosecute this case anymore. I already have a guilty defendant who has pleaded guilty and I'm going to sentence him. And that means he's the felony stays on his record. And, you know, maybe he sends him to prison for a few weeks. I mean, the judge could theoretically send him to prison all the way up to the top of the guidelines, which I think would be a couple of years. But I mean, if he did that and maybe he will, but if he did that, then we I mean, <laughs> we know this guy's completely out of his mind. Uh, there was cooperation with uh, between M M uh, Flynn and the Mueller probe. So 
you would think that he was facing zero jail time. This was an issue of the man's honor, his integrity, getting back his reputation, the financial and psychological damage done to him. Uh, the, these deep state judges, I mean, you go into Washington, D.C., you know, the D.C. Circuit, you got a bunch of o- Obama appointees. This guy's not an Obama appointee, but you got a bunch of Obama appointees. You have a far left jury pool. They've all been watching too much of the, you know, the idiot show on MSNBC and CNN, especially on Russia collusion stuff. And there's no accountability, really. So a judge like I mean, this judge, if this judge does do what I think he may, in fact, do, my friends, think about this, that we would have gotten to the point where the evidence was so overwhelming of the entrapment and the setup of the Trump National Security Advisor, General Flynn, that the Department of Justice had a career official say, even after a guilty plea, we're sorry, we messed up, we withdraw our case. And a deep state judge, activist judge, decides that it doesn't matter. He still, he still thinks that the person should go to prison or should be ruined? Come on. This is, uh, this is absurd. But this, this is what we are up against now. This, you're seeing it. He may force the president... To pardon a uh, a in this uh, it would be a convicted, you know, a convicted felon. That's what he will be if the judge allows it to be so. If the, if the judge's pronouncement is, you know, this is what happens and he will he will force the president of the United States to pardon Flynn. You know what that does? Then the left turns around and says, see, justice was served. It's only the president who had to bail him out. One of his political cronies. They'll forget all about the new information. They'll forget all about the do we get Flynn to lie or do we just get him fired? That's all you have to know here. The FBI never has a motivation to set up a meeting with you so they can get you fired from your job. That's not a criminal matter. That's not a criminal sanction. The we don't want you to be in this position of authority anymore, so we're going to try to mess you up. That's like a high school prank, but conducted by the most powerful law enforcement agency in the country, dudes with guns who can lock you up in prison and ruin your life. This judge is going to allow that to happen? Hasn't we? We don't know yet. But it's looking more and more like, yeah, yeah, he thinks that's justice. Disgusting. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I wanted to talk for a moment about something that occurred on Sunday's edition of Meet the Press. During the program, we had a soundbite from a CBS News interview with the Attorney General Bill Barr. In the bite that we aired and commented on, Mr. Barr was asked how he thinks the history of his decision to end the prosecution of the former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn will be written. Mr. Barr answered, quote, history is written by the winner, so it largely depends on who's writing the history. In the full version of the interview and transcript, he went on to say, but I think a fair history would say that it was a good decision because it held, upheld the rule of law. Now, we did not edit that out. That was not our edit. We didn't include it because we only saw the shorter of two clips that CBS did air. We should have looked at both and checked for a full transcript. A mistake that I wish we hadn't made and one that I wish I hadn't made. The second part of the Attorney General's answer would have put it in the proper context. And had I seen that part of the interview, I would not have framed the conversation the way I did. And I obviously am very sorry for that mistake. We strive to do better going forward. Chuck Todd with a full-on... I was wrong, but like kind of it was CBS's fault for putting out the shortened clip. But mm, do we buy that one? And we have so many other things to talk about with our buddy David Harsanyi, who joins us now from National Review. 
We'll also talk about his latest excellent piece there. David, Chuck Todd saying, yeah, okay, we got this wrong, but, you know, CBS put out a short clip and we just went on that. Um, I know I actually I actually don't think this was an error. I think they just thought they'd get away with this because it's so egregious and so clear that there's just I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I tend to think that he did that on purpose to make a point that was something that a lot of the media was talking about at the time. But, you know, the problem here, I think, is that there's never any consequence for this sort of thing. I'm not saying Chuck Todd should be fired, but I mean, you know, if in the old days you were at a newspaper and you cut a quote in a way to make someone seem like they're saying something they're not, there would be some kind of consequence, I think, for it. Even today, I saw the New York Times had a quote from Jared Kush- Kushner where he says, um, you know, I'm, you know, that the elections will be uh, delayed. But when you look at the whole quote later on, it actually says he says, I am not in charge of that, you know, which is an important part of the statement, which was cut out. So then, you know, Hillary's repeating it. It becomes like embedded in the conversation that we're having. Tons of people believe it. And we just move on every time. It happens every week, at least once a week, where you have someone mangling a quote. It's got to be on purpose because it always skews in the same exact direction. It's just a, it's, a, it's, it's impossible that they're always getting things wrong in the same direction all the time for year after year. It's just not plausible. Now, we were just talking before you came on about the Judge Sullivan, who looks like he's going to give the opportunity for uh, amicus briefs to be filed about what's gone on here with the DOJ dropping charges against General Flynn. Um, I, I was worried about this last week. I brought it up on, on the show uh, so the audience would be prepared for the possibility of something weird happening here. I didn't know how bad it would get. There is the possibility that he still sentences Flynn as if the DOJ, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, he could. I've discussed this with a former DOJ friend of mine. That is absolutely something that, that could go on here. Somehow it looks like people are just planning to move past the targeting. I mean, on the left and in the media in particular, to move past the targeting of Flynn and the the trove of new information that I think everyone would have to agree is really relevant about what what happened here. I mean, you wrote a piece. Obamagate is not a conspiracy theory there. And you say that there is more. This is up on National Review right now. There's more evidence for the targeting of Flynn and for Obamagate, meaning Obama being directly involved in this in some capacity than there ever was for Russia collusion. But we're just the media just wants to move past this. I mean, Brian Stelter, who's a joke and a clown, was saying that the right is obsessed with this story now. It's so hard to even push back against what they're doing because it's gaslighting. You know, they pretend that it's a conspiracy theory, even though you, you, you ask them a slew of questions. There's a ton of evidence, a ton. FISA app warrant applications, nine, over 90% of them in this case had fraudulent evidence and were riddled with errors. Errors, And um, you have, you know, tons of stuff that we're learning about uh, Adam Schiff and how he lied about having evidence of collusion and so on. I mean, there's so much. And they never answer any of those specific questions. They just quickly jump to some, you know, over-the-top comment that Trump made or, or, you know, some exaggeration he made. And then sort of revolve their argument around that and ignore the, the massive evidence we have that something uh, wrong had happened here. So um, it's difficult to push back against it, but it is not a conspiracy theory. Uh, perhaps it's, you know, perhaps Obama, and I mentioned this in my piece, you know, people jumped all over it. Perhaps there's no specific crime that Obama, you know, engaged in that we're going to prosecute him for. I think you shouldn't think that, yeah, people shouldn't think that's going to happen. But clearly he knew what was going on, and clearly there are abuses of power here. Um, and it matters because Joe Biden and a ton of the people involved in that 
are, are trying to take power back, right? And they used that investigation to undermine the administration here. It's an abuse of power. Yeah, and if you had heard about a European country, for example, where during the what's supposed to be the peaceful transition of power, you know, if in the UK one outgoing prime minister had had, you know, the head of MI6 and MI5 in a room and said, hey, let's let's pull all the phone calls and emails of the top national security advisor to the incoming prime minister and to the incoming government. Now, they have a different system. I know the transition doesn't work, but you know, you know what I'm saying? We would all look on this with horror. We would say, oh, my gosh, what's going on in that country? I mean, that's really scary stuff here. We're supposed to move past the, 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 the you know, when you put it in very basic terms i think it's it's helpful the obama administration illicitly spied on the trump campaign senior trump officials they lied they covered it up and then they actually used the lies to target people that that is a fact now that did happen no one seems to care though on the left it's worse than that they used concocted evidence paid for by the democratic party to launch this investigation they withheld contrary evidence in their warrants when, when their initial warrants on, on people within the Trump orbit. They then, some of the agents said, explicitly said that it was an insurance policy in case he was elected. I mean, there's tons of evidence. And let me just quickly say this too. Everyone's always like, you know, they'll call something a conspiracy theory because it's not plausible within their worldview. Like Obama wore tan suit, that's the worst thing you could have possibly have done. Obama spied on the American people and his uh, his, you know, uh, Clapper lied about it uh, in Congress. To Congress, yeah. Brennan spied on Congress. They spied on Iran deal, op- you know, opponents. They spied on AP journalists. They spied on a Fox News journalist. They were they normalized and weaponized spying for political reasons long before they did this. Why does anyone believe that they wouldn't do this when they were doing this kind of thing for years? Well, and I look, I think a big part of it is that they also knew that. And I mean, one of the biggest jokes of the mainstream media is that they, they, you know, they would on on some of these issues, they would hold Obama accountable. Writing one kind of milquetoast editorial or having like fake tapper over at CNN be like, this raises troubling questions. That's what they do when a Democrat essentially shreds the Constitution. Uh, When Trump theoretically could do something, they're calling it fascism and saying that he should be kicked out of office through impeachment. I mean, that's the I mean, and I mean, journalists are saying this. That's the difference. So there's no accountability. Trump had done or the Trump administration had done any of the things I just mentioned in relation to spying, especially on journalists. You know, they would have melted down. It would have, it would be never ending. And rightfully so. You know, that's the thing. It's the same thing with the Biden um, sexual assault allegations. It's not that you, you're acting wrong now you know, in, in how you're covering these things, maybe it's that you don't do you don't cover the other people with the same tenacity and you don't care. And that's the problem. And I'll give you a good example of why it's a problem. David Frum, who is, you know, everyone knows who David Frum is. <laughs> he, he says this whole conspiracy theory about Obamagate doesn't matter because no one is covering it and no one cares. So you see, they can cover the Russia collusion thing that turns out to be, and I think hoax is, is is too light a word for what it is. It's a dangerous conspiracy to try to undermine the transition and the legitimacy of a presidency. Um, but then when we prove that it's, it's you know, this co- corrupt enterprise, we don't care because no one pays attention. Well, no one pays attention because you're not covering it. That's why no one's paying attention. So 
the media matters and how they cover things, I think, really matter. And this is a good example of why. We're speaking to David Harsanyi, senior writer at National Review. He's got a great piece, Obamagate is Not a Conspiracy Theory, up on nationalreview.com. Now, David, I want to, I want to transition to something that I've, I've sort of talked to you about offline. I, I have tried to be slow because I do think and look, I, I was especially somebody here in New York and, you know, I've got you know relatives that are in the high risk age group. And, you know, in the early weeks of this, I was well from the information we had, it looked like this was going to be it looked like it was going to be 1918 in a sense with the with the Spanish influenza. We were going to have a three, four percent fatality rate, which people thought talk about 50 million dead from the Spanish flu. It was a 5% fatality rate, actually. I mean, that's what it was. And that gets you to 50 million dead around the world at that time when they had a much smaller population. It'd be much higher now. Turns out it's much, much less than that. And so you, know, you would think that there'd be a ratcheting down of concern and also an elevation of the economic concerns. This is just a way of saying I'm now at the point where I think that most of the opposition to reopen and to individual and economic freedoms has become political. It's actually not fear-based. Where are you on the spectrum, and what's changing your mind one way or the other about this? Well, look, when you see folks writing pieces about how, you know, Republican governors want to kill their population, but then they conveniently leave out Colorado or places in California, you know, mayors, things like that, and just focus on Georgia or some place, you know, some red place, and obviously they're just using this, you know, for, for politics. And I think that I don't think it was a hoax that this was coming and people were legitimately scared and they legitimately tried to close down and flatten the curve and all that stuff. I think it was legitimate. But I think since then, a lot of partisans believe that they need to keep the economy closed until November to win the election. And that's, you know, I mean, I think there are a bunch of people like that. And because of how partisan everything is, you know, you can't really have a debate about uh, economic trade-offs and, and the trade-offs and lies. And all of a sudden, if you you know if one person is dying, we can't open it up. It's such an inane uh, position to take that we don't take for any other thing we do in life. It's like I wonder though, like as you mentioned, individual freedom. Like, what number of deaths allows empowers a governor to just by fiat make make decrees without govern you know proper government channels? Because 60,000 people died of the flu. I'm not saying this is like the flu, but why wouldn't they be able to save those lives as well in the same exact way? In fact, if there's 20,000 dead, why, why do you want them to die? It's, it's, the argument doesn't make sense. It's too wide open. So um, here's my position is that, yeah, I mean, I'm against any kind of coercive effort by government to tell people how to act and to limit their movement. Um, I personally pretty much follow all the rules because I'm kind of a coward, but um, for other reasons as well, but um, I just don't see why the Maryland governor where I live can tell me that I can't go right. shopping. Somewhere. But, but see, here's 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 the point. And I mean, I appreciate that you admit that you're taking, you know, you're taking those personal precautions. And so you're not telling. But, you know, I think people that are advocating and I would assume you're finding yourself in this group, too. It's that if you want to continue to take individual precautions for yourself, no one's saying don't do that. What, what people like me are opposed to is, you know, someone recently, I just saw this, uh, you know, today on social media, uh, a couple of guys like got together, some bikers got together to have some drinks somewhere or something, and 20 police cars show up and are like, you better break or we're going to arrest you because you're breaking our COVID ordinance. That's a problem. Yeah, 100%. I, I mean, 
not to get too into it, but I, you know, I have someone in my family who's immunocompromised, so I want to keep them away from this or even the flu or anything like that. You know, so I, I do my best uh, to do that. That's a personal decision. There's zero reason why the parks here are closed, right? There's zero reason why a beach should be closed. There's zero reason why the government should be able to tell a bunch of bikers not to get get together and have a beer. It's just no. It, it, the Constitution doesn't say except if things are you know some people are dying from a virus. Well, and, and I think I take it serious. Yeah, and well, and ultimately, uh, ultimately, I also view this as if the government can say your actions could theoretically have a negative health consequence. Or, I mean, when I mean your actions, your normal day-to-day actions, just you being a human being who's going about your life, can have negative consequences for somebody else, and they can tell you that you know you can't open your business. How far are we from China where they say, no, you you cannot leave your home. You cannot leave. You cannot go outside. And if you do, we will either fine you or imprison you. I don't I don't see how there's a where, where's the where's the check on that authority? I don't see where it is. I think they could declare that. And some people would say, OK, Yeah, I think some people would say, OK, um, but I, I think it's also important to remember that in general, I stay home despite the rules you know, the, the, the governor telling me I have to. I don't do it because of that. I think most Americans would act in ways that are responsible, you know, considering the information they have without government telling them to do it. Uh, and I think that's what happened initially. In Florida and other places, people locked down because, uh, you know, they took it seriously. Yeah. But as, as I'm sure you've mentioned many times, you know, this was about flattening the curve, and um, we've done that clearly. So I don't understand, you know, the argument changed while we've been locked down. And, uh, and we, we end, should be allowed know, to be upset know. by that, by the way. We should be allowed to note that and say, hold on a second. Yes. Yeah. The point was we didn't want to overwhelm hospitals. It is a very decent point to make. And New York really suffered. And uh, there was potential of that happening. But you have other places, you have hospitals going out of business and firing people because no one's showing up for the other ailments that they have. Uh, obviously, there's been a spike in, 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 in people calling suicide lines, things like that. There are other costs, but we're not allowed to talk about those things. And that makes me suspect that it's because there are underlying partisan reasons they don't want us to talk about it. David Arsani, everybody, also, check him out at National. I'm sorry. Go ahead, David. I don't know if we're done. I don't want to. Keep no, no, no. You got, we got another minute. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, I, I think that people protesting and stuff like that reflects well on American life and Americans in general, that they don't just meekly listen to the state and, you know, follow all those orders that are, you know, to me, seem unconstitutional in some sense. But, yeah. All right. David Harsani of National Review. David, always great to see you, man. Thanks for your time. Anytime. Thanks for having me. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Just when you thought CNN couldn't get any more ridiculous, they up their game and get more horrible. It's amazing what they're able to do, really. It's like they sit around in a room thinking, how can we be a bigger fake news network and more awful in what we do, the decisions we make, the coverage we have? CNN has decided that they are having a, an expert panel come together on coronavirus. And guess who they're including in their expert panel? 17-year-old Greta Thunberg. That's right. Remember? How dare you? Remember Greta Thunberg? She is an expert in nothing. She is 17 years old. But CNN, while they're lecturing everybody about science and expertise all the time, CNN is putting her on a televised panel of coronavirus experts. These 
CNN morons are beyond parody. They really are. I, I can't even think of effective ways to mock them anymore. They debase themselves so much more than I ever could. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Collectively, we've already uh, spent about, or in the process of spending about $2.8 trillion. We now have a debt the size of our economy. So I have said, and the president has said as well, that we need to take a pause here and take a look at what we've done, see what's working, see what isn't, and also begin to encourage the governors around the country who have the decision-making ability to begin to open up the economy. Got to stop spending money. That's a Mitch McConnell, that's a cocaine Mitch way of saying, look, we got we to take a breather here, guys. We can't just be throwing trillions out. E- even the U.S. federal government can't just be throwing trillions out the window like they're, you know, candy corns or M&Ms or something. So, by the way, Producer Mark, what are the best of all M&M flavors that are out there? What is number one? Oh, that's tough. Um, definitely, I mean, regular is the GOAT, the greatest of all time. I do like the caramel, and I saw mm. some sort of fudge-filled one recently. I discovered like recently, the for, for the holidays, uh, I discovered hazelnut M&Ms, and let me tell you, they are fantastic. They weren't as good as I wanted them to be. I still like them. Like, I, I wanted them to be filled with Nutella, yeah. but they weren't. I, I find peanut M&Ms very disappointing. Yeah, like I'm not peanut, a big peanut peanut butter peanut kind of guy. Peanut butter, amazing. Peanut, it's not worth it. It's not worth it, you know? I'm not into it, not having it. So Mitch McConnell saying, uh, no more M&Ms for you, America, or at least we got to stop throwing M&Ms. We got to stop doing this. We can't keep showering uh, every problem with, with money when our economy is, is working at a fraction of its normal capacity. I mean, this would be bad to be spending at this level, even if the economy was really good, but we're going way beyond uh, way beyond what anybody thought would be possible and the, you know we've now reached this point where it is deeply political in this new pelosi pelosi's pushing for a oh well here, here she's telling us what she wants to do which is to transform america this is going back to the obama idea and the progressives idea for the last oh hundred years of just keep changing america as radically as you can and and do whatever you got to do to get the power necessary for that process here's pelosi saying that you know this this COVID-19 situation, it's an opportunity. Play, play nine. We must all take an extra moment to understand the numbers we are seeing, which are the most overwhelming in our lifetimes. These numbers require action that we've never had to take before. There are those who said, let's just pause. You have the families who are suffering know that hunger doesn't take a pause, the rent doesn't take a pause, the bills don't take a pause, the hardship of losing a job or tragically losing a loved one doesn't take a pause. This is an historic challenge and therefore momentous opportunity for us to meet the needs of the American people to save their lives, their livelihoods, and our democracy. Let's understand this, friends. We are in the early phase right now of what, unless we stop it, will be the most massive, momentous expansion of government at all levels that we have seen in this country in 100 years. And it may, in fact, be the most uh, massive expansion of the government that has ever happened. It certainly is the biggest expansion of the debt based on on numbers. And even if you were to uh, even if you were to look to control it for 
uh, you know, the value of the dollar then versus the value of the dollar now, uh, still, even if you were to adjust it, it would be we, we've never seen anything like this. I mean, the Democrats, uh, this is the biggest opportunity that they have had in my lifetime to transform the American government into being the mega state that they that they ideologically and, and really emotionally and at some level spiritually are attached to. That's what's happening right now. And we have to see it for what it is, um, because otherwise we're just going to be in a position uh, where we are engaged in what, what you could call in the financial markets. People refer to repeat surprise. Uh, you're just going to say, oh, wait a second. You mean that one, you know, here, here we are, we were going forward and they're using this. We knew in the beginning they said it was a crisis they were going to use as an opportunity. And now they're expanding the government and they're going to keep expanding government. And they're doing all the things that we would have assumed if we had taken a step back, the left would do in a moment like this. Yes, that is exactly what is happening right now. But it's hard to see it in the moment because you you want to believe that Democrats can put aside their uh, their their partisan wish list, their partisan fantasy, just while we're dealing with this problem. You want to believe that that's happening, but it's not. They are using this now for political purposes and their primary motivation in the policies that they're pushing, because they, they've bought into this false this false narrative of if it saves just one life, just like they, they do with gun control. That is a recipe always for government absolutism. If my policy can save just one life. It, it morally overrides any objection you might have, any right you may have. There's no outer limit to this. There's no boundary for this. And they've established this. This is now the position. If more people will die from COVID-19 and who knows even over what horizon, I mean, maybe in the aggregate, more people won't die if we were to just open and just go about our normal lives, because if we're going to herd immunity right now, guess what? That means people are getting infected no matter what the government says or does. And it just changes the speed, but it does not change the overall pool of the infected. If, in fact, that's now I'm not saying that's true, but increasingly it looks like that's we still a lot of infection, 300,000 infections a day under lockdown. That's that's the best guess they have right now. So every 10 days, another three million people will have been infected in this country with COVID-19 during lockdown. So what, what do we think we're really accomplishing here? Ah, it's a political motivation not a health, not an epidemiological motivation at its core, but they use this this premise, this false premise of if a government policy can save just one life, you cannot object to it in order to shut down all opposition. This is also why Pelosi is she understands this. And that's why it's very hard to, to get through. It's very hard to push. Through. You know, I have people that are writing into me on social media. Oh, you want old people to die and be horrible things. It's a it's a total lie. These people are morons, but they're leftists. So they already believe an ideology that is godless, hateful and stupid. They've are, they, and there's no escape from that as long as they believe that ideology. That's what they think and that's who they are. Um, but they they use this to shut down any objection that we have to what they're trying to do. And you can already see it. I mean, Pelosi's pushing this three another three trillion dollars in spending. And you know what they want to do? They want to extend the federal six hundred dollar uh, unemployment sweetener. Well, if they extend that to 2021, which is what Pelosi's bill looks to do right now, that she's already unveiled this bill, you have effectively achieved a, a stale $15 plus minimum wage. 
you know, based on how much money people will be making into 2021, you're not going to get these workers back. And then Pelosi will just say, maybe we extend the employment benefits another six months and another six months. And, and the only way you get people to want to go off unemployment at that rate, given what the state benefits will be and the, the government keeps, you know, refilling the coffer, refilling the coffer, is if you're going to offer somebody considerably more money. So now you're looking at, again, $15 plus. You might have to uh, small business owners will be faced with you either pay a $20 minimum wage or people would rather be on unemployment. And into 2021, this is real, folks. This is happening right now. This is what your government is doing in your name. Uh, it's, it's a disaster. We have to wrest control back. We knew, I knew, I said it to you, you said it to me. We knew that they would seize too much power and they would not relinquish it. They would use the emergency to take the power into their hands and then their greedy little fingers, the government would not release the authority that they have just taken it upon themselves to have in this crisis. We saw it coming and we didn't stop it. Now we have to push back and it's going to be a fight. Government likes power, doesn't like to give it up at any level, at any time. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Look, before um, uh, the Me Too movement, women were not listened to who um, uh, were telling what had happened to them. Since Me Too, women are listened to. Now, I've heard Joe Biden's uh, explanation. I think it's sufficient. I think he will be a great candidate. I think he will be a great president. And I think he'll take us t- take help us take back the Senate. Ah, Chuck Schumer weighs in here with before the Me Too movement, women were not listened to. Now they are listened to. But I mean, we've heard enough about this Tara Reid person. Let's move on. Oh, man, he is. He is always so predictable, consistent, at least in his sliminess. Uh, but let's talk about where the Tara Reid allegations currently stand and also the Biden candidacy overall and the politics of the moment. For that, we are joined by our friend Tiana Lowe. She is a commentary writer at The Washington Examiner and also a contributor to The First on Pluto TV. Tiana, thanks so much. Hi, Buck. Thanks for having me. So Chuck Schumer says, yeah, no, everyone's listened to now, but Tara Reid's been listened to and he believes Joe Biden. So how do we describe the standard now that Democrats are using? Do, is there a standard? Do they do, can they define what the standard is? I mean, the only discernible standard right now is whether or not you have a D next to your name. Quite frankly, let's just let's just in short summarize the evidence differentiating Christine Blasey Ford and Tara Reid. With Christine Blasey Ford, you had every single person who she named at being the, at the party where this assault allegedly happened. They denied that such a party ever existed. The earliest corroboration we have of her telling anyone about this alleged assault is in 2012, when Kavanaugh was back in the news because he was on Mitt Romney's shortlist before the Supreme Court. If you look at Tara Reid's allegation, you have multiple people with a few corroborative problems who say that she alleged that Biden had assaulted her at the time. But you have at least one person on the record, her neighbor, Linda Lacasse, who's willing to say that she said so two or three years after the fact as well as an official document submitted by her husband in response to a restraining order in 1996, so it's three years after the alleged assault, claiming that Reed had undergone some traumatic harassment. At the very least, it's clear-cut that Reed faced harassment from Biden. The assault, though, however, has so much more corroboration than the Ford allegation ever did. And the fact that Democrats are simply, they're even saying that they think that, that the evidence is insufficient. 
they're outright just saying that they just don't believe her. It's it's truly gross, and it just goes to show how manipulative and nasty this specific strain of so-called feminism is. And on this uh, just more, more general point of who the Democrats put forward to lead the country, you know, they they wanted to make the case that Donald Trump was was super on that and put it put aside. We've all heard all the criticisms of Trump uh, plenty in this regard and many others. But we, they wanted to make the case to us that Trump was deeply unethical and they put forward Hillary Clinton. And then they made the case that uh, and, and, and along with also that Donald Trump, you know, the Billy Bush tapes and everything else. And now here they are. They have another chance to put someone forward to oppose Donald Trump. And they put up a guy who Joe Biden, who has corruption problems with uh, with Burisma in Ukraine and his son, whether it's illegal or not, it still looks really gross. It's very obvious what happened there uh, has a credible allegation of sexual assault against him. And now it seems pretty clear the Democrats plan is to keep Joe Biden hidden away in the basement until Election Day. Tina, is that is that their best move, given the realities of what we're seeing about Joe Biden, who's being tested in ways that he's never been tested before? I mean, the scary thing is that probably is their best move, just keeping him off the campaign trail. You know, I said at the outset that in the long run, he would be best served by radical transparency and addressing the Reid allegation to start with. Honestly, the Burisma issue, the Hunter Biden stuff, I never thought that was going to stick. No one thinks that that Joe Biden lacks any corruption. But he was supposed to be the personal decency candidate, whereas Trump bragged about grabbing women by the, you know what, Biden was supposed to be the family man, the respectable man. That he didn't address this head on for over a month made it look like he has something to hide. And now that he's not opening up his University of Delaware archives, it still looks like he has something to hide. I don't know if he does. I don't know if Kara Reid is telling the truth. But right now, the evidence is quite disturbing, and he is not acting like someone who wants to be immediately exonerated. And we have. So what's his best bet? Right now, about one-third of all voters tend to believe that Tara Reid is telling the truth, and that includes a fifth of all Democrats. But still, you know, a lot of these people are going to vote for Biden anyway. But, you know, that might not be great for them, but it does mean that Trump, in a way, is kind of inoculated from one of his biggest deficits, which, which is the character perception deficit. He no longer really has to worry about, oh, now he's running against this moral paragon with women. Because quite frankly, I think the Tara Reid allegation has tainted Biden's candidacy in a very serious way, especially among the suburban women who were crucial in helping Democrats win the House in 2018. Yeah, and this is also coming amidst a whole lot of other uh, stuff about Biden that is is not in, in question. I mean, the the photos of him sniffing people and kissing women's heads. And I mean, he, he definitely is a grabby, weird guy with women and has been for a long time. I, I don't think there's really any dispute about that. I was told by a Secret Service agent who was present about what had been written about Biden. I mean, I can ask you as as a as a woman, um, if you were in the Secret Service and your protectee, in this case, Joe Biden, found it uh, to be a, a normal routine to go old man Biden. By the way, I'm just saying, I mean, you know, I'm, I can't prevent people from visualizing because I got to describe a situation. But he would go swimming naked in front of not just the Secret Service details, uh, detailees, but female Secret Service detailees. If that were my wife or my girlfriend, I wouldn't think that's OK. That's just a matter of record now. No, it's absolutely not. And again, this is what I said last year when the initial Biden allegations, if we can really call them that, but, you know, with the hair sniffing and the touching. We all know that's wrong. If we saw our grandparents do that, we would correct them. We would not let 
our dads sneak random women's hair. But the fact is, <laughs> no, Biden is just a classic person in power who just got away with all of it for so long. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's the he's the class. It's interesting because the Democrats, the woke left has put forward the classic, you know, the 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 sort of stereotype, really, of the, um, you know, power hungry, power mad white male who grabs at people and abuses his position specifically for, you know, gratification with with the opposite sex. I mean, that that's. This guy is this guy's like the you know looking like the Matt Lauer of the political world right now, and you know there's really they're just gonna the, you, I'm sure you saw the editorial in the New York Times right it was a, maybe a week or two ago where a woman was like oh I totally yeah. believe her I'm voting for Biden anyway oh so now you're just gonna vote for a guy who's a sexual assaulter you you know I actually don't believe. Uh, like the allegation against Trump and Bergdorf Goodman. Like, I just don't think that the evidence was on that woman's side. I, I forget her name now, the one who wrote the book and came forward. But to say that you believe it and you don't care, that's a whole other level that Democrats are hitting. Yeah, no, I mean, I seem to recall a big, huge hashtag and movement that we had to talk about how, you know, rape is bad and we shouldn't reward sexual assailants with positions of power. I mean, it was a whole thing. But apparently that was a very long time ago, and apparently it was just to make sure that we could say orange man bad and pretend that we had a reckoning about Bill Clinton. But, you know, apparently it's over now. So that's it's quite unfortunate. When are you going to have we got to have you have a Zoom throwdown with some radical left wing feminists on this issue? That would be some really that would be a good debate. There's never good debates anymore. It's everyone's just, you know, preaching to the choir. Nobody will leave because this would be really interesting. Yeah, no, and I think I'm someone who's been pretty fair and pretty sympathetic to not only Biden, just but but specifically conservatives entertaining Biden's candidacy. But the Tara Reid thing, I mean, that's kind of the last straw. I, I, if you're going to vote against tax cuts and judges and an agenda that you like because you want to vote in a referendum against Trump's character, you don't do it for the guy who's running away from a credible sexual assault allegation. Fair point. Tia uh, Lowe, everybody, check out her latest at the WashingtonExaminer.com. Also look for her here as a contributor on the first. Tiana, thanks. Uh, Tiana, thanks so much. Thanks, Buck. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show ain't over yet, folks. Keeping it real. Time for roll call. I haven't done that for a while. I thought producer Mark might miss it, so I wanted to bring back when I sing along with the roll call. One thing I will tell I did you: not. thanks for the clarification. Just no in case we no problem. Um, one, one thing I will tell you about having a dog that's your main companion. I, I do get to see the snow princess sometimes during the week, but not all the time. Others should probably go nuts having to deal with me 24-7 in close quarters like this. Oh, I guess that's called, for some people, that's marriage, isn't it? You live together. That's the whole thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, when you have a dog around you all the time, I find that you start, you, you come up with new names for the dog, and then you also start singing stupid songs to the dog. And I wonder if at some point the dog is like, what, is, what has happened to my human? You know, they do have, I'm telling you, this dog, this little French bulldog has got at least the cognitive ability of like a, like a two or a three-year-old human. I mean, she, she understands words. She knows her name when it's said. I mean, she can, she, there's, there's thought process that goes into this. 
if I ever, you know, tell her no or naughty or something, she punishes me by staring into the corner and not wanting to hang out for a while. So, you know, you learn things here. You did say, Producer Mark, you know, there's been a big uh, surge. I just looked this up yesterday again. Um, this, the one, you know, we look for those little silver linings as such as they exist in this current debacle and, you know, catastrophe as it plays out across the country. Uh, but a lot of shelters are, are, have seen a huge increase in uh, adoptions of dogs and cats. Which makes yes. sense. And uh, a lot of people are fostering animals right now just because they're going to be home now, but they won't be home in the future. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. And so instead of animals being in cages, they're home with people and they're getting, you know, better, uh, better access to care and cuddles. All right. Kevin, kicking us off in Roll Call. Remember, if you want to be a part of Roll Call, and we always hope you do. We'd love to get some new voices in the mix, too. First time. You know, you, you can put in the uh, in the subject line instead of I love producer Mark or producer Mark, you're hilarious, which will usually be a good way to get yourself into roll call. Uh, you can also write in the subject, you know, first time, first time roll call. And then we'll try to make sure that people that have never gotten a chance to have their voice on the show will be on the show. Uh, so team buck at iheartmedia.com or facebook.com slash buck sexton. And like I said, some of you have found me on Instagram, which is great. It's just Buck Sexton. Just remember, though, if you send a message, you got to say, you know, for roll, you know, roll call and then your name and then you can write your message. Otherwise, you know, it's it's, you know, cat cat lover five, two, five, nine or something sending me a message. And I'm like, I don't, is this a person or is this some is this some Russian bot trying to throw an election? All right, Kevin Buck, the people elected Donald Trump, the Democrat coup failed. Now the DNC strategy has shifted to making we the people suffer until we throw him out. How far does this go? The left is evil, wolves in sheep's clothing. Speaking of clothing, where's the Buck Sexton apparel line? I went to BuckSexton.com hoping to find a producer Mark t-shirt, but no joy. Shields high. Um, we, we, are, we are hoping to do that. Uh, we have a limited bandwidth because of all the content we currently do, and, and that's just a big way of saying we, we need more staff. I mean, right now it's, it, we're, we're already running on a on what you would consider for a nationally syndicated show with as many listeners as we have we're we're at a skeleton crew every day so uh yeah although i don't feel like a skeleton these days with all the mac and cheese i've been eating and with the and with the uh, big bowl of carbonara that snow princess made for me from scratch gluten-free i've been eating it for breakfast i gotta tell you car uh, producer mark carbonara pasta for breakfast it's got bacon in it makes perfect sense have you finally started heating it up yeah, she was like, she looked at me and she's like, it's kind of savage, you know, you're eating it out of a giant metal bowl from the fridge, cold. With savage me. is one word for it. I was going to go with sad. I mean, it was delicious. What do you mean sad? It tastes fantastic. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Cold pasta is great. Oh, it's amazing. I, I, I get into it. But uh, yeah, I did start heating it up. I'm a little more Good. civilized now. But have you, I, I will, what did you tell me? What is the favorite pasta? What's the number? What is your go-to producer mark pasta? Oh, mac and cheese. Okay, but like you're an Italian restaurant, you can't order mac and cheese. I mean, you never know. Uh, I mean, I guess if I'm in an Italian place, penne alla vodka. It's funny. You said, I was actually uh, I watched a video on how to make that recently. I want to I want to make it from scratch. Not that hard. Not really that hard. So yeah, it's very easy when you go and get a jar of sauce from the grocery store and pour it over some pasta. <sighs> I just you know, producer Mark, we're gonna get you cooking. We're gonna get you All cooking. Right. And Mrs. Mark, Mrs. Mark is gonna come home from. Uh, from her, her work in the healthcare industry and you're going to have laid out like a beautiful from scratch penne alla vodka feast and you'll even have you know like a little guy playing the guitar like in Lady and the Tramp you know 
I don't think any of that's going to happen, considering she's a much better cook and she enjoys it. Well, then you're a lucky man, no. and there we have it. So I'm just saying, if you want to surprise her for uh, for the birthday, when's producer Mark's birthday? We got to get this one on. The it way. was a month ago. Well, happy birthday from a month ago, producer and you, Mark. You literally did a minute on wishing me a happy birthday. I do a lot of radio. You really have the memory of a fish sometimes. <laughs> it's all just, just cram. Now I realize I did. I had a whole thing. I could tell like, you like, oh yeah, my birthday's tomorrow, Buck, and you would have believed oh, me. Oh my God. I do. I have to cram so much information in. It's like I'm doing final exams every day and I got nothing, I got nothing left. Snow Princess sometimes is like, you know, you told me that story yesterday. I'm like, I don't know what stories I've told. I don't know what I'm saying. I just, so much radio. All right, John. Buck, I don't know how involved Obama was in the whole Russia conspiracy. I don't know how involved he was with Flynn. But at this point, no one can convince me he wasn't involved. I believe he was in the background often, possibly even calling some of the shots. But there would be more evidence leading back to the White House if he was hands on. But there is no way, especially with all that we know now, that he wasn't involved to some degree. Uh, John. Uh, yeah, that's uh, you and I. You and I agree on this one. Um, there's no way that Obama wasn't at least aware of this and that this didn't set off enormous alarm bells and all kinds of red flags. You're going to you're going to have your people go after the incoming. You're, you would operate under a we can't share all of the national security information that we have with the new national security apparatus of a duly elected president and his administration. That's that's stunning. That is coup-like stuff. I mean, that's not the coup itself, but that's if you're preparing for a coup later, you would do that. Or if you had been preparing for a coup before, you don't want anyone to find out. Soft coup, using the law, but that's, you know, using some variant of, of legal interpretation. Oh, you know, Trump colluded with Russia. He's a traitor. He can't be the president. You know, let's go have the sergeant at arms of Congress arrest him. You know, whatever crazy dream the libs were thinking they were going to or just have the obama administration say sorry we have to hold a new election and who knows what they were really thinking they sit around talking about how trump's not going to willingly leave office all the time there's been no reason to believe that they also said that he was a fascist for the first two years and now here we are where you have a, a situation you could not dream of a bigger opening for fascism in america than what we are seeing happen right now where if you disagree with government policy, you are literally killing people by wanting to go outside and live your life. You are literally killing people. That's what they're telling you. Biggest opening for fascism you could ever see. And Donald Trump is like, OK, let's work together. Let's you know, give the states autonomy. What are the experts saying? Let's inform the public. You know, let's get reopened. Let's get people up and running on the economy. The opposite of a fascist approach. But. Do you think any of them apologize for that or say I was wrong? I shouldn't have said that about the president. No, of course not. These people, these lib journals, they're trash, trash, I tell you. Oh, wow. Here we go. Scott writes, dear Buck, I'm an essential rider in the or share ride driver in the Denver metro area. And as happens, we sometimes hear how life is treating our customers. Well, first off, uh, thanks to 93.7 Freedom FM in Denver. One of our great stations. We uh, do. We are number one in our time slot there. We're doing uh, so well. Thank you to, to Team Buck in the Denver area for listening to the show. You guys are making Mark and me look good to our bosses all the time. So thank you for tuning in and making this such a such a hit show in that area. Um, I picked a man up, and when I asked him how life was for him during the lockdown, he proceeded to recount his recent financial status. He said he got laid off from his restaurant job, but received his tax refund and his stimulus check, so he was feeling pretty secure. He started receiving unemployment, which was more per week than he was making while working at the restaurant. Just when he thought life was good, it got even better. 
His old employer called and asked him to come back to work and said that he would receive back pay, but he had to say he had been working all along if anyone asked. Oh, and they were going to pay him for 40 hours, but he only had to work 20. At that point, with a nice raise, he was making more than his unemployment compensation, and he was happy to be contributing to society again. He was happier still this week when his boss told him that not enough of his former workmates wanted to come back to work, so they had to give him another big raise. To his credit, the young man said he's making more money than he ever has in his life, but he didn't feel great about it. Shields high. Scott, this is working the system. This is what's going to happen. People are going to work the system. Big companies, individuals, you know, everyone just feels like the federal government's now that the piggy bank has been broken open. How many coins are you going to get for yourself? That's the attitude. It's a free for all. You're going to see a lot of this. And as far as the Democrats are concerned, as long as their constituencies are getting paid off and as long as this is enlarging government, increasing the debt and and making um, their, you know, effectively making the government's authority feel like it's permanent in this regard, that they can just create what would be a universal basic income. I mean, if we can do this for six months or a year, giving people money to stay home, why can't we give people anyone who stays home money? Why not just give everyone direct payments? Fifteen or a thousand dollars a month, fifteen hundred dollars a month. We're running up so many trillions of dollars in debt, and it's all going to the corporations, they say. So what is the, uh, what is the response to this? Yeah. Michael, hey, Buck, I have two questions related to Governor Cuomo labeling the Wu flu as being caused by a European virus. One, when the president refers to the virus as a Chinese virus, he is labeled as racist. So wouldn't be labeling it European also be uh, considered racist? I'll answer that first. No, because it's not possible to be racist against Europeans, the left would say, uh, or at least not possibly racist against white Europeans. There is no such thing as anti-white racism, the left says, and there's no such thing as anti-white European racism. The left also holds to that. Yeah, that's what they believe. So what is animus against people for white skin called? We don't really have a word for it. They don't believe that it can even even happen which inherently means they must think that animus against people for being white, the left has to believe, if you just logically work this problem through, that animus that any, any person uh, has, including really a sort of self-animus, right, the people that have white guilt, but anyone who has a problem with somebody else because of their white skin or thinks less of them or thinks that they have benefited from society in ways that they can't, uh, that belief against white people has to be inherently justified. By, by history, by current systemic oppression and race, whatever it is. But they don't believe that it's possible. And I'm serious. This is a, a belief on the left. They don't think it is possible to have anti-white racism. That's not possible. Um, now, that gets tested sometimes in the courts when you have attacks on individuals who are, who are white because they're white. And is that a hate crime? Can that be a hate crime? The answer is yes, although authorities are usually very slow to charge that one. All right. Number two. Since it is racist to mention the source of the virus or pandemic, can we celebrate Columbus Day this year, especially since the greatest minds of the 15th century had no idea how viruses and bacteria were transmitted and how they, not bad vapors, caused disease? Only hoping we can regain some sanity in our discussions. Masks high. Um, I'm, I'm, since it is racist. Oh, because Columbus brought the, the, the explorers. You kind of. Mark, right, this was a little bit of a, a couple of leaps here, right? So it's because Columbus and the Europeans brought, vir- brought you know, virus and flu and other things into the New World, which decimated the native population here. We're not allowed to talk about that because it's racist kind of for them, right? Yeah, I mean, you're the history guy, so I would assume. Yeah, yeah but that's, that's, like, that's what he's yeah. trying to say, right? I believe so, yes. 
Yeah. A little. Oh, Michael, I, I see what you're saying. Creative, a little bit of a stretch. A little bit of a stretch. Um, you know, Columbus Day. An Italian on behalf of the Spaniards. But, you know, that's... Uh, I actually, you know, I'm not, I'm not too far. I can, I can get to Columbus Circle pretty easily. And I think, I'm just going to tell you, one day they're going to pull that statue down. They're going to manage. I, I don't mean they're going to actually just destroy it, although they might do that too, but they're going to get rid of it. And they're going to want to rename the circle. Columbus is marked, for, is marked for history book extinction. They're, they're going to find a way. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. More roll call rolling through here. Um, TJ writes, Buck, there's no doubt that Flynn should be further vindicated. Do you think Trump may be holding that vindication to campaign on, i.e. Trump speaking? If reelected, I will appoint wrongly accused and set up by the administration, uh, Obama administration, General Flynn to such and such a position. Just a thought. Um, I mean, TJ, I, I can't. I can't tell you that that won't happen, but I think that's pretty unlikely. Um, I, I don't think that that's the case, although I will note that it feels like they've been very there's been a real uh, slowness for the release of information that we should we should have here, you know, that we should be um, we should have known, you know, that's what I think. Uh, you know, the release of classified stuff that should have been declassified and released to the public should have been faster. Remember, Trump was going to put out the um, FISA applications, declassify them a lot earlier than he did. And by the time they got out, I don't think they had the same impact they would have if we had known about it sooner. And the Democrats were able to run around and say their crazy stuff for quite a while. Um, we got another, see, we got another, another from 93.7 FM Denver, you know, Freedom, 93.7. Hey, Buck. Hello from Denver. I just want to say that I find it funny that the Democrats refuse to give any type of temporary tax cut. And at the same time, they want to give every American $2,000 a month through the election. Obviously, something stinks here. They want everyone to know that they are giving you back your tax money for November per election purposes. Just a thought. Thank you for your voice. Shields high. Well, thank you. Uh, Greg, and yeah, Democrats like to hand out goodies that are really just things they've taken from other people, and they pretend like they're such, they're so great and generous in the process. That's, that's a common theme. Glynette. Hey, Buck and producer Mark. My name is Glynette. We figured that one out. I've just been listening for a few months, but really enjoy the show. Well, thank you so much, Glynette. We appreciate you listening. It's refreshing to hear a conservative viewpoint amidst the sea of liberal propaganda. I also laugh out loud every time I hear your Nancy Pelosi imitation. A little while back... I heard you bring up a C.S. Lewis quote. I have been reading his book, Mere Christianity, and thought this quote really describes the liberals at this point. It says the most dangerous thing you can do is to take any one impulse of your own nature and set it up as the thing you ought to follow at all costs. There is not one of them which will not make us into devils if we set it up as an absolute guide. You might think love of humanity in general was safe, but it is not. If you leave out justice... You will find yourself breaking agreements and faking evidence and trials for the sake of humanity and become, in the end, a cruel and treacherous man. That's a really interesting quote. That's very good. Thank you so much for sharing that. Keep up the good work. Come to Colorado and you can escape New York. Shields high. Well, Glenetta, I might have to move to Colorado. Denver sounds lovely this time of year. We'll talk more about that another time. Team, it has been real. It has been fantastic. I'll be back with you tomorrow, as we do every day. Keep yourself safe. Keep yourself positive. Shields high.